So let's take our Bibles. Let's talk about some of these rewards. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. We'll get through as much as we can of this, and then we're getting into the tribulation. Not that we're living in it, but we're going to study the tribulation and uh, spend a couple weeks on that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we started last week into this section. We made some comments. We talked about the rapture. If you're unfamiliar with that event, most of you aren't, but just in case somebody is, this is an event where Jesus says it's happening sometime in the future where he's going to come in the clouds there's going to be a trump. He's going to resurrect from the graves all the bodies of the believers who have uh, died since his, uh, his, let's say since Pentecost. And their bodies will be pulled out of the ground, resurrected, glorified. They'll meet their souls in the air and be reunited as a body soul. And then he'll gather all the living believers that are still walking around on planet Earth and take them up into the clouds. And so the living believers and the deceased believers that have been resurrected, they will all be taken to heaven and go back to heaven with Jesus for a period of time. That is, we call it the rapture. Uh, that idea of being caught away, being captured or, or taken away and rescued. Right sometime after that, there is another event described in Scripture, and it's the Bema Seat. Bema comes, as we mentioned last week, it is the word for a raised platform where the judge sits. And so it became a common term for judging place. And if you talked about you're standing before the bema, okay, it would be the idea of you're going to be judged. And so there's several passages that talk about the bema seat. Romans 14, we gave you references. Here's the specification of these verses. We all stand before the bema seat of Christ, so then each one of us shall give an account. In 2 Corinthians 5, we must all appear before the bema seat of Christ. Each one may receive things done in the body according to whether good or bad. Luke 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. There's two different resurrections. There's a resurrection of the just, or those who are born again, and there's a resurrection of the... Okay, yeah, the lost or the damned. And so he's talking about the resurrection of the just, that that happens. Then we have 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12. In 1 Corinthians 3, let's go to verse 11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ. For now, if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest or examined. For the day shall declare, because it shall be revealed by fire. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive, what's your Bible say? A reward, okay. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer damnation. Okay, we're going to talk about that because that's very important. But he himself shall be saved yet so as by fire. Okay. And know ye not that you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells within you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Interesting, the, the verbiage he uses in those last two verses, uh, the singular, plural, what he uses there seems to imply something different than what often is thought about. So scriptures use this building idea. Uh, Jesus did. Remember Matthew 7, Jesus said the wise man builds his... Okay, so Jesus used the building aspect of our life, being built on the right foundation. Paul uses that same idea saying the foundation is Christ, you need to build your life upon him. So this isn't a, a unique um, uh, illustration that's, that Paul comes up with. Jesus Christ had established that first of all. And so when he's talking about it, if we look at 1 Corinthians 3 and just make some observations, when we're talking about that judgment, 
some thoughts to keep in mind is that he's writing to believers who are very fickle. They're, they're go with the crowds. They watch whatever the polls say and they go with you know, whatever's happening in the world. They have their, their favorite different preachers. They're, um, they're enduring immorality within the church saying, oh, we just love everybody and even though this person's shacking up with his stepmom, it's okay. We'll just love them to Jesus. And uh, they themselves, some of them are being immoral. And they themselves are having a lot of angst and jealousy when they get together and they do a meal together as a church. Uh, the rich people, they snub the poor people. And it's just, it's a church with chaos. And so he's writing to them and he's trying to get these people to have a spiritual mindset. In fact, in, um, in chapter 1 going into chapter 2, he says, I could not write unto you as unto spiritual, but I'm writing you unto you as you are, they're carnal. He uses the word fleshly or carnal. And so he says, you're not spiritual. And so he's trying to write to these people to get a spiritual mindset. In the midst of writing to them about the spiritual mindset, what he's going to do is he's going to give them incentive. Incentive is uh, not just in this life, but in the next life. How you live is going to impact your ne next life what you do here. And he talks about the Bema seat. He talks about the judgment seat, how we who are believers, uh, how that's going to impact our reward. We're going to suffer reward, or we're going to have a reward, or we're going to suffer loss. And so let's make some observations real quick per your notes. Like a well-built building, because he's using a building illustration, we need to have a good, strong foundation, or it's going to collapse. We understand that. Foundation is critical. The foundation in this text is Jesus Christ. So the idea is you have to be built upon him. You have to be born again. In Matthew 7, where Jesus uses that wise man, foolish man, it's more than just being born again. Do you remember how he concludes? You need to listen to... Do you remember what the foundation, the strong foundation of stone is in Matthew 7? It's his teachings, that you have to listen to my teachings. And so he makes it very clear. So the foundation we're talking about is Jesus Christ, his person, and his teachings. And so he's talking about that very idea. Like a well-built building, we need to use the right materials. In this text, he says we have options. Wood, hay, silver. Uh, that's wrong. Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, precious stones. And so he's talking about how we can live and invest good stuff that's lasting or temporary things. Like any building, there will be, I'm getting a lot of ringing in here. Anybody else hearing this? Are we getting a ringing sound? It might be up here, and I think it's probably there. You want to check and see what's happening. Uh, thank you. Uh, like any building, there will be an examination that's going to be done of the building. And so he's talking about quality workmanship. Let's go a step further. The inspection that he's going to do is going to be very, very thorough. Uh, it's going to be made manifest. It's going to look at not only the quality of the materials or our efforts or our labors, but he's going to also look at why we did what we did. Okay, the wood, stay, the wood, uh, hay or stubble, or the idea is um, that which is lasting. Do we focus on temporary things? And it doesn't mean, and, and let's not let's not jump the gun here. It doesn't mean being concerned about your car is wrong. Being concerned about your house is wrong. Being concerned about, a, you know, as a 30-year-old stressful thing, clothes stressing you out, okay? Is that evil? Not necessarily, we're not saying that that's what this passage is about. That's saying that we shouldn't be concerned. Should we be concerned about the things that are put into our care as wise stewards? Yeah, we should be. 
but it's did we invest everything and all of our energy in those things that were going to just last for 10 years, 20 years, 70 years, and not take anything in with us into eternity. And so he's talking about that, which is really valuable. And we understand what, he's, what he means if we think about it, is, okay, we can get so interested. Um, I happen to like football. I can get so interested in the Vikings that I could be consumed to the point that I don't share the gospel with anybody. And he's saying, okay, it's not evil to be, cons- to be concerned about the Vikings. It's not evil to follow that. But if it dominates your life to the point that, you know, it's not lasting. And so it's that type of uh, conduct that he's talking about in the passage. And we made observation. This is a really important text, and I quoted it for you. In 2 Corinthians 5, that we may receive the things done in our body, whether it be good. You, know, you may want to mark your Bible. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, he talks, this passage says, we must be at the Bema Seat. If your Bible isn't clear in your English translation, you make it clear by marking this so that you don't get confused. This is not a judgment. Some will look at it and say, well, it's a judgment of whether I have sinned or not. If you are going to be judged whether you sinned or not, what is the punishment for sin? It's death. This is not a punishment for uh, talking about damnation, salvation. This is not a punishment over moral issues or immoral issues. And the word he uses in the original language when he uses good or bad in 2 Corinthians 5, they are not the words that we, that we would say are morally good or morally bad. They are words that are very specific in the Greek that just says profitable or unprofitable. And that's the better translation to get the rendering of the idea that we're not going to be judged over, did I sin, did I not sin? It's whether did I spend my time on that which was profitable and lasting or not which was profitable and lasting. So it's, it's worthless or it's something that's very valuable is the idea. God will examine what sort it is, 1 Corinthians 3. That is the motive behind why we did what we did. So it's not just that we did something, but what was our motivation for it. As a result, we suffer rewards or we, su- or we gain rewards or we suffer loss. And so just, and, and I'm trying to do this as a very general, not just go expository to the passage, but just give you general doctrinal study that we would say, okay, let's answer this question. Who are the people in this judgment? Well, the person who is judging is Jesus Christ. Okay, that's, that's a gimme. He is the one we're going to give, the beam of seat of Christ. The ones who are being judged are believers, believers during the church age, Pentecost on. He uses this idea, we, we, we all, writing to the Corinthians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone may receive things. Every man's work shall be made manifest. Every man. And again, remember the context. When he's talking about everyone, it's those who have built their foundation on Jesus Christ. He's not talking about the, da- the lost. He's not talking about the damned. That's a different judgment. He's talking about the believers who have built and put their faith in Christ. They're going to be judged. Romans 4 we shall all. Everyone in these texts emphasizes the we all idea. They use the plural, so every one of us. The idea here is this is a very personal judgment in that it's all of us, each of us. All of us will give an account for ourselves. Each of us will give an account for ourselves. And so it's a very pointed, very personal. It's not going to be we as a church are going to be judged. It's going to be you as an individual, me as an individual, that we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. Now, the place of judgment, we get the indication that it's in heaven. In 2 Corinthians 5, where it talks about we must all appear before the Bema seat, it says in the previous verse, absent from the body is... 
present with the Lord. So it's an idea of being in heaven. And so it makes it very clear. Now, here's the question that, that might pop up. When is this Bema seat? Some suggest this. Some suggest, based on Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. And they say, okay, that could include not only, you know, could you go into heaven or not, judgment of the damned, but for the saved, do people, when they, when they pass away, believers, do they go to heaven and their Bema seat, their reward is done immediately? Okay. Um, some suggest that, that that's a possibility. Every indication seems to give the idea that we are all going to appear almost as if there's a one-time setting, but it's not specified in Scripture. We do have this idea that we who are alive and remained, those who are raptured, the big group of the rapture, we're there, and we're going to have to give an account after we're raptured. So it seems that the vast majority of the judgment of believers is going to take place at a one-time setting called the Bema Seat. And so we seem to think that what it is is there's going to be one designated time that the Bema Seat takes place, and it's going to be right shortly after the rapture. The reason I say that is we looked at it last week. In Revelation chapter 4, it's the idea that there's the 24 elders have received their crowns, the 24 elders sing a song. We have been redeemed out of every kindred, nation, tribe by the blood of the Lamb. The only group that has been saved, in, according to scriptures, out of every kindred group tongue is the church the church folk. And so the 24 elders who represent the church are the individuals who are singing the song. They get their crowns and they give them back to Jesus before the beginning of the seal judgments, which is the beginning of the tribulation. And so uh, there seems to be some period of time how long Jesus needs to examine all of us. Don't know uh, how he can do that so quickly. That's you know, it makes sense he could do that in a, in a twinkling of an eye or he could take a period of days or weeks. So between the rapture and the tribulation, there, it seems to suggest strongly that there's the one-time event called the Bema Seat. But could it be, is there the remote possibility, because we don't have clarity on this, that when you pass, if the Lord hasn't come back, you, he might reward you before uh, the whole crowd of everybody gets raptured. There's that remote possibility. We just don't know. Uh, the purpose of the judgment. This is the critical thing that you and I need to remember. The judgment is not to determine whether or not we're going to be allowed into heaven. The reason we say that is because we're already in heaven. Okay? And he says, you shall be saved yet so as by fire. So the believers that he's writing to, and he's saying, you're carnal people, you don't lose your salvation at the, at the Bema seat. Okay? He's dealing with people who have a foundation upon Jesus Christ. And he making it, he's making it clear that this isn't a loss of salvation. You're saved yet so as by fire, but you will have a loss of rewards or commendations. So it's not an accounting of all of our sins. And this is what, um, I, 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 you know, makes for great preaching. This makes for wonderful preaching to get people to respond to a church invitation, but it sure doesn't make sense theologically. But uh, I've heard preachers do this during different uh, services that they say, oh, you stand before Jesus Christ as a believer at the Bema seat. You're going to answer for every illicit thought you had as a believer, every time you gossiped, every time you disobeyed your parents. It's motivational preaching, but if I'm going to be judged for my sin, then what is the result of every sin? The wages of sin is, 
Yeah. And so he says, your sins and iniquities will I remember no more. So we go on and say, man, if, you know, this can't be a judgment for whether or not we deserve to be in heaven based upon our sins or based upon our good works. If we get to heaven based upon good works or we get to stay in heaven based upon our good works, then what has happened to salvation? What has happened to faith? What has happened to grace? Then we're saved by Christ plus our works. It's me and you keeping us saved. But Jude says that we are kept saved by who? Not by me, but by the power of God. And so this can't be a judgment over our sin, okay? But we give an account for service. And I think there's going to be something here that, that plays in that there's going to be loss in that sense. In, um, in Jesus giving the parable of the talents, Jesus giving the parable of the good stewards, he's making it clear that he's gifted some people multiple different talents. Some, do you remember the, there's two different accounts. One is like one, five, ten that he's given the different talents or different coins to. And um, do you remember in the one story that, that, that what, did the, what did the person with, with just one, what did they do? They buried it. They did nothing. They didn't do any activity with it. They just took it and sat on it. And that person he's going to rebuke seriously. And so it has that idea that in this, this uh, emphasis is, okay, what have I given you, gifted you with? What have you done? What have you built upon this foundation that you've been saved? What have you done in your labors? Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says we're going to answer for things not seen by men. So it's going to be stuff that people haven't seen. They don't know about it, but God sees it, and God remembers it, God rewards for it. In 1 Corinthians 3, it seems to me, and that's based upon, remember those two verses I said, you got to watch the, the verbiage here and the pronouns. When he says in verse 16 and 17, he is talking, he uses, let me, let me see if I can rephrase it. Don't you all know that you all are the singular temple of God? And he goes on, and uh, he says, And the Spirit of God dwells in you all. If any man defiles the single temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the single temple of God is holy, which temple you all are. Okay, we know that one of the temples of the Holy Spirit is what? Our bodies. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And there it's, it's the, he makes the pronouns match one another. Here the pronouns don't match one another. You all form one single temple. Well, what could that possibly be? What is the one dwelling place besides your body that God would call a temple? The church, the church body. Okay, and he says that same word where he says the church is the pillar and ground of the, of the God. And he uses there that same word for temple when he talks about that in uh, one of the pastoral epistles. And so it seems to me that in this context, if he is saying you all form the temple, together you form the church, woe be unto one of you who, or any of us, who hurts this body, woe be unto you, if you try to damage this body, whoa, 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 okay, that he's putting an emphasis here that a lot of our labors are in conjunction with what? Church, the body of Christ. 
ministering, as you said, getting out the gospel. And, and by the way, it, do we fulfill the Great Commission by simply getting out the gospel? Just, we just get out the gospel, just witness, and just get them saved. Maybe I should clarify. Do we fulfill the Great Commission by just getting them saved? No. What do we have to do? Disciple them, see them get baptized, and then follow. What entity is the baptism associated with? What, what, what institution is, the, is, is dealing with baptisms? It's the church. Where is the instruction to be given through who? The discipleship, through the body of Christ. So the church is very, very important in the sense of, okay, and by the way, hospitality, let's just lay that out. Hospitality, where in the New Testament he encourages hospitality, he says you're going to get a reward for it. What does he encourage, the, in particular, what does he encourage the believers to be hospitable towards one another? The one another passages deal with hospitality. And, um, and so I'm sure the hospitality passages all deal with, are all stated in a one another context. And so it seems to me that church ministry, church activity, church investment in ministries that are following the institution of the New Testament church, that that is a part of this reward. What you do in regard to contributing to the body of Christ and not just being a loose cannon doing whatever you want, but rather working through a local church ministry of discipleship. And so it seems to me that Christ is very anxious to give rewards, that he talks about it and he encourages it, that he's not going to be, you know, um, he's not going to be tight with his rewards. Okay, what does it mean by suffer loss? This is where you're going to get, go online and start Googling this, and you're going to get a wide variety of ideas of what it means to suffer loss. Let's clarify, okay? We already said, said this. Some, some will say we're judged and punished for unconfessed sins done after salvation. We could be put out of heaven because of that, or, or we could be put aside and suffer a mini purgatory. Uh, I heard a preacher preaching this one time. He says, hey, you stand before the Lord, and, and the sins you did that you didn't confess... He's going to say, go away from me. And he's going to make you stand off to the side. And you're going to stay there. And you're going to feel the brunt of that, of that sin and how it hurt Jesus Christ until after he's all done with everybody else, he's going to call you back and deal with you. Um, that sounds like purgatory to me. Okay, That doesn't sound like Bible to me. But boy, did he get a good response from people who got scared during that church service and came forward to confess everything. Okay? And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that people made confession, but can we make confession based on doctrine that's true and not some, you know, some twisting of the truth? Um, it doesn't seem like he's going to punish us with a mini purgatory. It doesn't seem like he's going to say, okay, you, you did really, really good, so you've been faithful and you can stay in heaven because then we go right back to that thing we talked about. Then we're saved by grace and good works. And so all these violate that simple uh, idea that Christ is the way, the truth, and life, not us. Um, and let's move on. The potential, I, I, this to me makes a whole lot more sense where he says some believers will suffer loss and he mentions that in 1 Corinthians, we read it. In 2 John 8, look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we might receive the full reward. Okay. 
I want to make sure I get the full reward and I don't lose something that was potentially mine. I think this would be devastating. Stand before the Lord and the Lord would say, if you had been you know, more consistent, here's the crowns you could have had. So we know what potentially we could have had and we go, ah. Okay, it's not because of sin that we're losing a reward, but the idea is we're losing potential rewards because we just weren't focused. We just weren't as faithful as we sh We weren't as hospitable as we could have been. We weren't as witnessing, sharing the gospel as we could have been. We weren't as uh, determined to go through the trials as we should have been. And here's what we could have won. And so I think that would really devastate most of us. It will devastate some of us in the sense that we, we learn that aspect. There is going to be embarrassment. Okay, this is important. Now little children abide in him that when you, he shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. That we don't stand there with nothing to cast back. There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be some regret. That is going to be a part of this Bema Seat judgment and that some of us will say, I just, you know, I gave in. I just gave in. I knew better, but I gave in. I, I knew I should have done that, but I just said, I'll do it later, I'll do it later, I'll do it later. And I had opportunity to serve, but I just put it off because I thought the, I thought the car was more important. I thought the house was more important. Um, I thought getting my way and proving I was right was more important than sharing the gospel with, an, with this person. And so in that sense, there's going to be some suffering of loss. And we're going to have, there's going to be some with shame. I, this is me in my, in my um, stupidity, my carnality. I look at this and go, I think I'm going to be a whole lot more shame than anything else. And to me, that's a motivation to say, get it together. Get it together at times. And just, you know, I'm going to answer to the Lord. And I'm so glad I don't have to answer for sins that I've asked for forgiveness for. I'm so glad my, my sins and iniquities, I, he will remember no more. Wow. Aren't you glad God's not going to bring, bring you up for the things you've done wrong? I mean, that's a thrill but I also know at the same time, you know, I've got to take, take advantage of the opportunities and not, not get so self-oriented at times. So the rewards, we mentioned this, and let me just run through them real quickly. There are several mentioned specifically. I think there's more. Uh, these are specifically mentioned, and it seems to imply there's more than this, but uh, here's what we've got. This is the crown of rejoicing. You, several of you mentioned this. This is the one where he's talking, and he says that you are, you are our crown of rejoicing. Paul's talking to the Thessalonians. The idea is we shared the gospel with you. We got you born again. We discipled you. You're our crown. And so it's called the crown of rejoicing. It's for those who are sharing the gospel. And I think it goes to people who invest, people who pray, people who plant the seed, people who sow, a wide variety of people in getting people saved like you folk have done. Many of you with even missions, many of you with giving out a gospel tract here, talking to a co-worker. They didn't get saved, but a couple years later to get saved and, and you planted some seed. To me, that, that makes sense that that's part of that crown. Crown of righteousness, this is for those who love the Lord's appearing and uh, you know, actually looking forward to the Lord coming back. Their, their, their life is living in a way that he could come back. He could come back at any moment. And it's not just the 
theory. It's not just a doctrinal statement, but it's a reality in their life that they're looking for the Lord's return. The crown of glory, this is for the preachers who are faithful in doing what they're doing. They're not, um, they're not lording over the congregation. They're leading the congregation. They're feeding. They're protecting the congregation. And he says there's a crown for those who have done those, those labors. There is the incorruptible crown. This is the, verse, uh, this is the passage that says, I keep my body under. Um, I strive as a runner you know, so run the race. The boxing illustration is in this passage about how he's disciplined, and he makes the statement that he runs the race. Um, 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 the phrase is that you run it in such a way that you don't get, um, do you know what I mean? Not, not the beating win, but the disqualification. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah, that you, you stay in the lane, you, do, you run by the rules. Okay, and so that's basically an, it's a self-discipline crown, saying no to the flesh, being disciplined, being faithful in not giving in to the temptations. The crown of life, this is the James 1 verse 12, Revelation 2 verse 10. This is the one that some are calling the martyr's, excuse me, the martyr's crown is another reference for it. It's the idea of, okay, have you endured the trials? Have you been faithful even in those moments? Those are the, crown, those are the specific five crowns that are mentioned. I also said that in Luke chapter 14, which we read up here a little bit ago, that has the, uh, the statement about the hospitality. And uh, so these are the ones enumerated, Luke 14. This is the passage, Luke 14, 14. This is the passage that he says, Be not ye as many of the, of the Pharisees, that they invite who to their places? Their family, their friends, and people that will profit them. And he goes, well, rather what we should do is we should invite and be hospitable to those who can do nothing in return. And he says, then he makes the coming, you shall be repaid at the resurrection. And so that idea of, you know, generosity, hospitality, the people who aren't people that, that benefit you, but rather you're just trying to be gracious and show that. First Corinthians 3, that idea of not destroying, not hurting the body of Christ seems to imply that there's other crowns involved with building up the body, building up the body, which a lot of you are involved in. And it seems to me that there would be crowns in that regard. The parables of the stewards and talents indicate that what happens is based on this Bema Seat judgment, our assignments in the millennium and beyond are going to be based on did we, did we, uh, were we faithful with the gifts that we were given? with the opportunities, with the talents, with the skill sets God gave us? If so, then faithfulness breeds more opportunity to serve Christ in, the, in eternity. So there's gradation of job assignments based upon were we faithful now. Isn't it amazing? This is, this is the, the, the profound thought. What we do, and take whatever you've been saved, how many years? What you do in 40 years of salvation makes a difference for how long? For eternity. So the investment of saying, I really want to be faithful to the Lord, man, there's incentive. And no wonder Jesus revealed what he did in these passages. They were all given as incentive passages to be really be faithful. Now that's the Bema Seat. What happens after we get the rewards, we read about in Revelation chapter 4 that they cast their crowns before the judge. And that makes perfect sense. Who enabled you to be effective in giving out the gospel? 
Jesus Christ. Who rewards you for doing it? Jesus Christ. So he gives you a reward for something he helped you to do. What's your natural inclination? Is, I don't deserve it. He does. And so we give him back the crowns. And it could be, again, this could be the possible regret that we might feel is when we know we have opportunity to worship, we don't have anything to worship him with other than our voices, which is good, but the crowns we could have had. So that's the, the, the whole aspect of that doctrine that most of you know about. But let's just highlight the, these concluding thoughts. Our Christian service is important to Christ. Okay? And thus it should be important to us because it impacts our future. It doesn't get me to heaven, but it, it impacts what I'll do in heaven. Let's make another statement. Our Christian service will not be overlooked or forgotten by Christ. Others may not see you doing a witnessing. Others may not see you in your private moment of dealing with your trials. Others may not see how you are uh, struggling and overcoming some besetting sin. But God does. God sees all that. God knows all that. He's not going to forget it. Christ is concerned about our Christian service so as its quality and its motives. And so we need to be concerned about it too. Those are Bema seat facts that we deal with. Okay? And so now we have to say, okay, that's incentive. Let's deal with what happens right after in the chronology of events. Let's deal with the next event right after Bema Seat. It seems that after Bema Seat, we cast the crowns, Revelation 4 and 5. Then Jesus opens up the seals. If you go to Revelation chapter 4, 5, 6, you'll see, look at the chronology and the paragraph headings you have. If you look at it, Jesus Christ is giving out the crowns. The 24 elders are praising him. You know, worthy is the lamb. They sing all those songs. And then it says, the one who's sitting upon three takes the scroll and begins to open up the scroll. And he opens up the seven seals. These seven seals match exactly Matthew 24. Matthew chapter 24. Let me, let me just show you real quick. You got a finger in Matthew 24 and you have a finger in Revelation chapter 6. Okay? And I'll give you a chart here in a moment. You can write down and scribble up and get yourselves going on it. But in Revelation 6, let's, let's start there. Revelation 6, I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. And, and understand what he's doing in, in case you're sitting here and saying, I don't understand what it means by the seals. Um, ancient scrolls were always done on long extended parchment. You would just, you'd just keep on writing, 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 writing along this. You know, you'd take a section of the page that you're going to write on, uh, like in the Greek, and you would start writing. And as you're writing, you don't put any spaces in. There's no punctuation. Okay, in the original, they didn't have that. And so they're writing all their lines, and they would take part of that parchment, whatever the section is, and then they would move to the next part of the parchment. It wasn't broken. There wasn't a perforated edge. There weren't pages, per se. But they would take, okay, they work with a 10-inch rule, let's say. They do the next 10 inches, and they just continue their writing, and then they roll it across the desk a little bit and continue their writing. And when they're done with a book... The book wouldn't have pages. It would be as long as the roll is with those, and, and at 10 inches I'm just using, those 10-inch sections. And it would just be continuous. There was no, there was no breaks at all. Uh, there's no paragraphs. There's no chapters. It's just continuous writing without punctuation. That would be a challenge for most of us, right? And so you read it all the way through, and uh, then they would roll it. 
And they'd cut it off at the end when they're done. And you'd roll it together and you'd have the scroll. And Paul says, bring the scrolls to me. And so the scroll. And then what you would do is you could seal portions of it. If you were done writing for a period of time, you might roll it up and seal it so that somebody doesn't come along if you're writing it over a period of time, uh, you know, for a few days in a break, you would seal it so that it doesn't get unraveled and ripped up. And so you would seal it there, and then you'd pick up from your seal and continue on as you're writing, and then you're done writing, you could seal another section of it, okay? And you could do that. Well, the, what he talks about is the scroll that Jesus has has seven different seals in it. And Jesus starts opening up these, this scroll, breaking the first seal, and that's one of the judgments that starts. And we read about that judgment here in, uh, in Revelation 6. I saw the Lamb open up one of the seals and heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, and one of the beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. Him that sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him to conquer and to conquer. That's the first. Then he breaks the seal and goes a little bit further. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red. Power was given him that sat upon it to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. So you have a conqueror, which implies overcoming others. You have death by, a lot of death going on by warfare. Third seal. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see, and there's a, lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand, and they, I hear a voice that says, a measure of wheat, that's a day's worth of food, for a, what's your Bible read? How much? For a penny, that's a day's wage. So you get one meal, you know, one Whopper sandwich for a day's wage. What does that imply? That food is very, very expensive or rare. Okay. He goes and he says, um, and then he goes on, he says, three measures of barley for, by the way, the barley is not a good, was not a good uh, 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 bread making in their, in their eyes, but it was the cheaper type of, of substance they would use for food. And he's saying, oh man, this is, this is expensive. And then he heard not the oil or the wine. He opens the fourth seal and says, come and see. And I look, behold, a pale horse. His name was Death, Hell, and was given unto him the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, hunger, death, and even the animals. And then he goes to the fifth seal. I saw that there was under the altar souls of them that were slain. If they're souls of people who were killed, and it goes on and talks about, for the word of God and for the testimony, what do we call this? martyrdom, persecution, and he talks about those people, they're saying, Lord, how long until you avenge us? And then look at the next one, verse 12, the sixth seal. He opens up, there's a great earthquake. The sun becomes a sackcloth, the moon is blood, the stars fall from the heaven. The fig tree, and he talks about how every, nature is in chaos, the heavens departed as a scroll, and he goes on. Now, go back to Matthew 24. That's the, that's the seven seals. Go in Matthew 24 and watch the parallel that Jesus, that Jesus clearly makes comment about those first, those first six seals in Matthew 24. Okay, he doesn't call it the seals. He's talking more in general terms in Matthew 24. Jesus answered and said, Take heed, I'm in verse 4, that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. You shall hear of... Okay, a white horse coming to conquer, a red horse coming to bring death by the sword. So you're going to hear of wars and rumors of war. Don't be troubled, for all these things must come to pass. Nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and then there shall be 
Famines. Remember we said one whopper for a day's wage? And then you're making food out of barley, which is you know, subpar. There's going to be pestilences. Remember the pale horse that came to kill by animals and diseases? And he goes on and he says, and then there's going to be what else? The famines, pestilences, and then the sixth seal was the great earthquake and the, sun, the moon is falling out of its place, etc. All these are the what? The beginning of the sorrows. Okay, and so if, if you do that with all this, with this Matthew 24, you can see the book of Revelation if you overlay it. It is amazing how it is so accurate. Let, let's back up. This is all called the tribulation period. This tribulation period, if you're unfamiliar, is the last seven years before Jesus Christ comes back. It is predicted by Jesus Christ to be the worst time in all of human history. Now most of you understand, know all this and you could be teaching this better than I could because you'd have more clarity. But it goes by many names in the Bible. Old Testament, New Testament talk about it and every one of these names that are given, and these aren't, this isn't an exhaustive list, but if you look at them, all but the day of the Lord. Every one of the other names indicates it's a terrible time. It's a bad time. Sorrows, wrath, dreadful, you know, trouble, indignation. And so it's, it's, it's described throughout Scripture as a period of great, great woe and misery. If you were to chart it, okay, you chart, you write however you want to do this if you want to do it. This is just a very basic summary. I'll put this in your notes next week. But just for, let's say that's seven years from the first line on the left to the one all the way on the right. And it's broken up in the middle. So we have seven, seven years, three and a half, three and a half. What we do is we start it off with a signing of a treaty between Antichrist and Israel. Okay, and this is going to be, Antichrist is going to be uh, the leader of the Western world. Okay, is it Trump? I don't know. Okay, is it you know you know people and people were saying it was um, who was our former president um, Obama? Okay, uh, you you've had through through all kinds of of dates and ages you've had people guessing who it is. There's no clarity in Scripture as far as identifying him until he signs the treaty. And so whoever that is in the Western world, and the reason we say Western world is we'll talk about this in Daniel 9, out of the revived Roman Empire. Roman Empire is Europe, United States would be the Western world. Um, and so he signs a treaty with Israel. And it's a treaty that he signs for seven years. What it involves, we don't know. We do know this, that in order to sign a treaty with Israel, Israel has to be a, a nation. So that already happened, 1948. And there's Western alliances. And by the way, are there Western alliances? Are some of them in jeopardy with Brexit and other things that are going on? And it's a ten-nation confederacy. They signed this treaty. Then what happens is there's going to be a treaty of peace, and it'll benefit the Jews for three and a half years. They are going to have a period of peace. And by the way, he, if in Matthew 24, he said, you shall hear, you shall hear, you shall hear. Okay, that they're, they're not the ones that are being affected by that first three and a half years of problems. And so during that first three and a half years, that's the seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6. Okay, the seal judgments occur in the very beginning. During, then at the middle point, what's going to happen is Satan's going to be cast out of heaven. 
He's going to be kicked out for good. He's going to come down to planet Earth and he's going to fully invest in Antichrist and consume the fellow. And Antichrist breaks the treaty with Israel at the middle of the tribulation. And Antichrist then declares himself to be God and wants to be worshipped by everybody in the world. And the Jews in particular are going to say, no way. Okay? And uh, what will happen is that's when he sets up his worldwide system of the mark of the beast, the religious system. 666 comes into play at this moment uh, from the middle on. And then there's a second three and a half years. This is described as the period that is really, really bad for the Jews. This is the period that's going to be more difficult for them and uh, it's going to be their great, great tribulation. And that's the trumpet and vile judgments come in the second half. There are seven of each of those. In fact, the seventh seal opens up the trumpet and vile judgments. And so you have that next three and a half years, there's going to be a horrible, horrible time period. At the end of that time period, you're going to have Armageddon. And Armageddon will take place. The world is about to destroy itself. And people are attacking, all the nations are attacking what remnant of Jews there are in the Middle East. And Jesus Christ will return from heaven and put an end to all the warfare and everything and stop man from destroying planet Earth. And then that takes us into uh, the kingdom age. There's going to be a period of, that's described in Daniel chapter 12 and 13, a 75-day period between his return and the beginning of the, um, the thousand-year kingdom. That's a basic overview of some of the major, major events. There's a lot of things in between here. There's a lot of stuff that takes, that takes place in between there. And so we know it's seven literal years. And the reason is because so many of the passages give specifics. 42 months, 1260 days, um, you know, mentioned. And so he's giving very literal statements like a time, one, times two, and a half a time, three and a half. If three and a half, uh, 1260 days equals three and a half years by the lunar calendar. 42 months, three and a half years by your lunar calendar. And so you have all these different specific statements about a time period. So we look and say, okay, we're talking seven years. What are those seven years like? We know it's the most horrible time in human history, and he gives specifics. Let me, let me just pause here, because otherwise, if I could get started, I won't stop. The uh, specifics are a lot of little comments about what will happen during that time period that we'll look at next week.